millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to the Ghibliotech, the podcast that keeps up with the careers of filmmakers from the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and we've snuck into the office after midnight. So join us on our quest to the glorious world of Studio Ponok. Welcome to the third episode of our very special Tokyo Stories, the Ghibliotech series recorded in Japan. So far, we've been on a pilgrimage to the Studio Ghibli Museum. We've been way out west in the Tama Hills for Whisper of the Heart location scouting and Totoro cream puff eating. And in this episode, we're visiting Studio Ponok. Michael, what is Studio Ponok? So Studio Ponok, we should say Ponok is a Croatian word for midnight, as in the dawning of a new day of animation. We've mentioned Studio Ponok a couple of times now. They are a studio made up of alumni from Studio Ghibli. They were founded by Yoshiaki Nishimura, the producer who produced When Marnie Was There, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. He struck out on his own, founded his own studio during that period where Ghibli had closed down or at least wound down production until Miyazaki wound it up again and he brought on board a bunch of animators filmmakers from Ghibli including Hiramasa Yonobayashi who directed Arietti and when Marnie was there he directed their first feature Mary and the Witch's Flower which we discussed at Latitude Festival last year in a live podcast he also directed a short film that's part of this anthology movie that they released internationally via Netflix late last year which is called Modest Heroes and we had our own hero on the the inside at Studio Ponok, didn't we? So we have to shout out Jeff Wexler. People in the know may recognise Jeff's name because he worked at Ghibli for years and as part of their international division. He would be in charge of the localisation of these films, English language subtitling, dubbing, the release locally in territories like the UK and Ireland. He moved over to Ponok with Nishimura doing a similar job and he has such insight into how these films are made and then how these films are then presented to the world. This is such an amazing conversation. We're so grateful to Jeff and all of Studio Ponot for welcoming us into their office. And like all of our adventures seemingly on this Japan trip, this one also began 
at a train station. Okay, so Jake, we've headed out west once more to visit Studio Ponok. Yes, this is actually on the same line that if you were so inclined you could visit both the head office for Studio Ghibli and the Ghibli Museum and touch between them. Quite symbolically placed at the station between both the museum and the head office of Ghibli. Yeah, and we've got a conversation lined up with Jeff Wexler, who's the head of international for Studio Ponoc, which is a wonderful title. I know, I can't wait to talk to him about how these films are presented internationally, maybe about subtitling and dubbing, titles, all the things that, I mean, really nerdy people like us really want to get into. Well, we can't wait. Let's go and find Studio Ponoc. So I'm Jeff Wexler. Uh, my title is Chief of International here at Studio Ponok. It's a title that I kind of made it myself back in my days at Ghibli um, because I do all sorts of things. Pretty much anything that we do that crosses the border to in and out of Japan, I'll be involved and my team will be involved. So the easiest thing that people can imagine would be I help the films get out to the world. That would be called distribution in our business. So I help the films get distributed to countries around the world. Wrapped around that, we also do books and records. There's been some merchandising over time. Um, but I actually have one opportunity to be involved in the production itself, and that's to acquire the rights to make a movie based on a book. So a good example for Studio Ponok is The Little Broomstick mm. by Mary Stewart. Um, I worked with the f- studio's founder, Yoshiaki Nishimura, to um, go and buy the rights. He had found the book. He basically said to me, I want to make this movie, a movie based on this book. And so I f- after a very long, torturous process, um, it was a, v- a long one, which often happens, found the rights holder, and negotiate the rights. So that's where I get involved in the beginning, and then at the, towards the end of the production, I'll get involved in distribu- distributing. I also take on the role of producing our English language versions of the film. We make two versions of every film, a Japanese version and an English version. So that's a little bit of film production. It's not making a movie, but it's a little bit of film production. Maybe we should start with those English language versions. Okay. Then. Could you take us through that process, the maybe the sure. stages? So the film is finished. In, in Japanese, and then well, at the very end yet, of the yeah. process, do you come in, or how, what, what stage do you come in? So I try to come in as early as possible. Uh-huh. Now it's easier here at Ponok because I work very closely with Mr. Nishimura uh, very early on in the process. Um, even now, I'm working with him on the process of even looking for books, and we're reading mm-hmm. all the time. Um, we have stacks and stacks of books around the studio, as you can see if you were to walk around here. Um, and so now I'm actually able to be involved much sooner. And then I'll talk with Mr. Nishimura about the project and about the film as he's developing the script and working on it. But I really start to come in when the storyboards are being completed. Um, And I did this as well as Ghibli. I kind of sneak in the early morning hours and read storyboards, get to know the kind of general flow of the story if I'm going to encounter problems. For example, the first film I made an English version for was a film called From Up on Poppy Hill. Lots of Japanese words showing up on the screen on signs and posters and banners. And I keep a list. How am I going to convey those to an audience? And we don't create what are called um, inserts where you change the language uh, of what you're seeing visually. So we, many studios do, and it's a very nice thing to do. A Pixar film will often create the words on the screen will be in Japanese mm. or Croatian or something. But ours, we keep the visuals as is. So I will do that as well. So I'm getting to know the characters in the story. I'll be reading the script in Japanese. Um, and then I kind of rebuilt the process in a way that I thought worked well, for us, I think it's different than the way other studios do it. 
At that point, um, a lot of studios will go straight to subtitling for sales purposes because that's what subtitles initially are for because you want to get out quickly before even the final um, Japanese might be locked or it's getting close to being locked. I thought that was kind of a strange way to go about it because you don't know the story as well when you're at the subtitles. Subtitles are a really weird way to create a film and watch a film. It's very restrictive. A lot of kind of rules you have to impose on yourself and it's not a great way to enjoy a film. I'll talk about that more later, even um, just for sales. So I decided we would get the script into English because that would be the language I would work with most people in. I don't speak other languages besides Japanese or English. So we create what I call a direct translation script. Mm. It's nothing you'd ever record. It's quite dull in a lot of ways. The dialogue might be stilted, it might be awkward, but it's as close as we can get from Japanese to English. And if you know anything about Japanese language, it's completely different than English. The verb is in a different place, the object is in a different place, there's usually no subject. Mm. So the sentence in Japanese can be, was eaten. We don't know who ate or what they ate, but Japanese will tell you that they know because they all communicate to each other telepathically, or um, it's in the context of the whole s of the scene. So that translation script is really meant to convey meaning and not be something recordable. Then from that, when the film is being finished, we'll create subtitles. I've worked with subtitlists uh, for the recent films I took it on myself uh, with a lot of support from my colleagues and a lot of checking with my colleagues. Uh, kind of get dip my toe in the water for that. And then when that's done, we will then go outside and I've worked with a variety of writers who are really good at taking a script and models that are already drawn and putting the words in the mouths. Mm. And one fellow I work with in particular, a guy who lives just actually south of London named David Friedman. David um, does many things, an incredibly talented guy, an animator and a comedian and an artist and now a songwriter, but he's also a script doctor. And something he's had to do over the years is he's gotten an episode of a, of a television animation show and the, it's all done. And they'll say, can't change anything visually, change the entire story. So he'll put different <laughs> words in the mouths. So he's very good at putting words in mouths. Uh -huh. um, but he doesn't speak Japanese and he hasn't been living with the film that, I live with, that I've lived with. So he'll create a recording script and then we have a lot of phone calls or sometimes in person and very pleasant heated arguments over lines. And since he's a funny guy, he likes to add a lot of funny and sometimes I don't really want to add a lot of funny and so there's that kind of cultural tug of war, which is very healthy for the project. Mm -hmm. Then we've, rec we've created that recording script and then we'll create what's called a scratch track, which is non-actors reading the lines in a way that matches the mouth movements. So we know there's at least one way that it fits. Then you get in the booth, and the actors are in the booth, and you hire actors to be the talented actors they are. You don't want to tell them how to perform the line. It doesn't always match up. We try not to play the scratch for them unless they beg us, because we don't want them to imitate our scratch. Occasionally we do. Um, and we even change lines in the booth on the spot. Um, and the engineer, the last film from Mary, for example, was a guy named John Sutherland. John and um, Giles New, our director, and I, and the actor were rewriting lines on the spot for Mary. Um, but I'm the one who's responsible for making sure it ties back to the original film. So I have a very authenticity obsession. Mm. Uh, I want to be very authentic to the film that Mr. Nishimura made and produced. Um, and that's kind of my... I'm kind of my Polaris for everything. Yeah. If, if when I get lost, I think back, what is the original? And it results in arguments sometimes because people want to, who don't speak Japanese, they, they won't always understand what's happening. And I'll say, well, that's part of the story. At this moment, you're not supposed to understand what's happening in the story. I'm not going to explain it for you. And Hayao Miyazaki used to say, if you really want to understand Japanese films, you should learn Japanese. Otherwise, <laughs> you mm -hmm. can watch our English version 
and he, I'll add this, he didn't have to say the second part, but I'll add on to it. The idea was, I made the film this way, and I've let people I hopefully trust create the film in another language that matched that film. If it's confusing in Japanese, or vague in Japanese, why shouldn't it be confusing or vague in another language? That's part of the experience. Um, and not every studio takes that approach, so looking for a broad audience that's comfortable. But I think fans of the, the Pono films and also the Ghibli films I worked on, they want to experience the film the filmmaker made. Mm. So I go back to that authenticity, and that's why we put a lot of time and a lot of money into making our English versions. We spend a lot more on English versions than most people would, uh, most distributors would for a so-called dub of right. the local film. Because there is some controversy internationally oh, just with a certain little. audiences yeah. <laughs> about which version sure. to watch. And I Sub versus dub, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've just said that uh, I've been watching the films wrong this whole time. Yeah, yeah. Wasted your time, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you said you rebuilt that process, yeah. um, what were the changes you made that you think brought that quality to these dubs? Um, or versions, sorry. That's all right. I mean, dub, I learned early on, the dub, the term dub actually refers to the, like, a step in the process mm. of creating a different language version. Um, and what a lot of people don't know is most films, live action included, actors go back into the studio to fix lines. Because when you record even a live action scene, a car drives by or they have to add sound effects or it's not really cl clear. So an actor will, will re-record. If that actor, they're still acting, mm -hmm. it's, it's still real, but it's a process known as ADR, alternative dialogue recording. And we use some of those processes. I think what I did was different was I started with a script and the storyboards to create a script. And through that process, I got to know the film really, really, really well. And I would be able to talk with the filmmakers, especially now here at Studio Ponoc, face to face and say, what does this mean? And even then we had, um, in Modest Heroes, there was a line that I misinterpreted at the last minute we had to fix. Um, even, even after all those processes, right. uh, because it's just hard. It's just really hard to do. But I think the thing that makes the dubs work well, I still call them those myself, I mm -hmm. just said it, works well, um, is that we produce them ourselves. Now we don't make the Italian version, we don't make the Korean version, but I've also put processes in place to protect those um, and the authenticity of those as well, which I can tell you about, but it's the involvement. Mm. Um, it's a luxury, not every studio can do it. On the other hand, the big studios, the big Hollywood studios, they make their own, English, their own language versions themselves, beautifully, mm. um, and they can decide how much they want to make it local to culture or not. Um, so I think it's a combination of starting with the story and then sticking with the story and then protecting the story that was in the original director and producer's eye, mind. Yeah. That's what makes it better, I think. Yeah. So, so you said the first one you worked on was From Up and Poppy Hill. From Up and Poppy Hill. Could you run us through the other films you would have done then, just for, so sure. our listeners know, so they can admire the work you've done? Let's see. To. From Up on Poppy Hill, The Wind Rises, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, When Marnie Was There, mm. Only Yesterday, Ronya the Robber's Daughter, which is a television series, mm -hmm. Mary and the Witch's Flower, um, Life Ain't Gonna Lose, and Invisible. Yeah. So I don't know how you would count all those. Mm -hmm. Ronya is 11 hours, so I don't know how you count that. <laughs> um, so well, yeah. all those. And then Red Turtle I worked on, but there was no, no, dialogue. no dialogue, so. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And the, the last two that you mentioned there, people might not be familiar with the Mary. two shorts from Modest Heroes. Modest Heroes, sure. we, That's not something that we've covered on the podcast okay. just yet. Um, so I think it might be worth getting some context on what Modest Heroes is for Studio Ponoc and how that came into being and Let's what, what purpose you okay. think it has. So Modest Heroes is the name of an anthology of three short films presented together as one set. That's an anthology. Um, a little bit of interstitial animation, opening and ending animation. Originally it was going to be four. Um, it would have been obviously a bit longer. Um, but the fourth film was going to be by Isao Takahata, who unfortunately passed away mm. during the production process. So I'm very upset about that. I'm still not going to forgive him for leaving us so soon, um, unfortunately. And, um, but we continue with the film, very much um, inspired by Takahata-san. And the three films are, um, in the English titles, are Kanini and Kanino by Hiromasa Yonobayashi, which I didn't need to create an English version for because it doesn't, it's not supposed to have a human language. It's the language of the crabs or the river or the water. <laughs> um, and so that has its own, which created all sorts of problems for distributors who call me frantically and saying, which version is this? I'm like, it's the version. <laughs> um, and then a film called Life Ain't Gonna Lose. The director is Yoshiki Momose, a longtime animation veteran and kind of amazing, incredibly talented um, animator. Um, the first time he, has, he had um, directed a film entirely himself, I always think that if Ghibli had continued to make films, he would have been next up to, to direct. And then a film called Invisible um, by Akihiko Yamashita, who's also a Ghibli veteran, an incredibly mm. talented animator. Um, and those, those three short films together make Modest Heroes. Yeah. So we created the English versions for Life Ain't Gonna Lose and Invisible. So would part of your role in the process be advising on the <coughs> English language title for Life Ain't Gonna Lose because it has a different title? Yeah, for all the films. So mm. I, I've been involved in creating the titles Except uh, Poppy Hill was already, actually, Poppy Hill actually had a different name and they were debating it and I rudely, brand new of the studio, said, I like that name. <laughs> um, for The Wind Rises, we created that from scratch right. in English. That was actually a very difficult name because the Japanese is kind of not common Japanese mm -hmm. uh, grammar, I was told. So we had to spend a lot of time on that. The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, uh, we created that title, which is not the title you would necessarily expect from the Japanese. Uh, when Marnie was there with some books, so that mm -hmm. we kept. Um, Marrying the Witch's Flower is not the name of the book. Mm. It also reflects, much like Kaguya, that the movie is not exactly the book. Um, it's inspired by the book and based on the book. Uh, and then for the short films, we s I, I did it with Mr. Nishimura. We sat together mm. and talked about, about it. Um, Invisible, I think, was one we came up with and agreed on within seconds. Right. Uh, Life Ain't Gonna Lose took weeks. We kept, we kept coming, coming back to it, all sorts of ideas. Uh, we were concerned that we didn't want to communicate something that would be false, for example. Mm -hmm. Like there was the idea that if, if you haven't seen the film, I don't want to give it away to your mm -hmm. listeners, but if you didn't get a certain amount of medicine in a certain amount of time, you might die. Mm -hmm. But what if you have a different condition? And so we, we couldn't call you know, 15 seconds or 10 seconds because maybe 20 would be fine for you or nice. wouldn't be. Little things like that. And then the name Shun, who's the lead character, one of the two lead characters in the film, in English is Shun. Well, that's not a very nice name for a film. <laughs> so we had a lot of trouble. Um, the kind of backstory on that was there was a, some Japanese 
materials that Mr. Nishimura had created when he was developing the film. Um, in Japanese, it's called kikakusho, yeah. which is kind of a project plan. Um, and there was a catchphrase on there of essentially life ain't gonna lose. And mm. I had translated that into our English version of the project plan, and I really liked it. But I kind of, a, I'm a grammar snob, and ink just wasn't working. And I thought maybe it will. So one day I suggested it, and it just seemed right. Mm. And it matched the character of being a boy who's not worried about language at the age of eight. So that film is fun for me because it has all the rules. I break all the rules I usually would never break, like ums and ahs right. and ain'ts and sucks and things like that. <laughs> so that was fun. But, I, but I've been responsible for the titles. Mm -hmm. but the, and they're so important for that international you know, uh, platform. Mm -hmm. uh, the title is one of the first things that people will see, be yes. they at markets or in festivals or on, on release schedules. Yes. So it's a very important part of the process if you are thinking about how to introduce the films to the world. It is, and it's very difficult. And I've also been responsible, but for better or for worse, for all the titles of the periodic exhibits at the Ghibli Museum for the past ah. nine years. And so every year in October, I get this frantic call saying, we're about to announce, we need a title. And so I'll go through all the materials and work on that. And the one of the reasons we're so frantically get, trying to decide the title ourselves is in, in the old days, the, the, the foreign film would come out mm. and eventually it would show up overseas and it would be released by a distributor. But now, because of that crazy internet and, and automatic translation devices, people come up with their own titles. So if we don't announce a title the same moment we announce the Japanese title, someone else will come up with a title. And it may be great, and it may not. Mm -hmm. I actually was approached by a guy at the Toronto Film Festival who told me that The Wind Rises was the wrong title, <laughs> which was a very interesting conversation, as you can imagine. <laughs> and he scolded me. He was basically scolding the person who came up with the title, not knowing it was me, um, and saying, you tell the person who came up, this is wrong. I'm not gonna tell you what he thought was right. Um, and I nodded, and I thought, I'm really glad we announced the title when we announced the Japanese title, because that meant it all came out at the same time. You mentioned about that crazy internet. Um, I've um, heard of it, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was really interested to see Modest Heroes go out on Netflix. Thank and you. with Mary and the Witch's Flower, for us in the UK, is very accessible um, compared to Ghibli back catalogue films. I think, is, is there a sense of making Ponnock's films easier to find and watch? Absolutely. So my background, before I joined Ghibli, I was with the Walt Disney Internet Group in first in Asia and then in Europe. Um, as a technology lawyer, which would probably surprise your listeners because they'd say, oh, how do you do get from there to here? But that's another story. Um, and I joined Ghibli, which was not doing anything on the internet. Um, when I joined Studio Ponok, one of the things I asked Mr. Nishimura, I said, um, we're going to be out there, right? We're going to let people see the films. And it was a no-brainer for us mm -hmm. that we wanted people to see the films. That being said, we wanted to make sure that we're on the uh, platforms that respect filmmakers, mm -hmm. really. Um, and also bring the films in a kind of a high quality way. So we're kind of both trying lots of things and also being very careful. What was the Netflix experience like? Because with Mary, it did have local distribution mm -hmm. in the UK with Altitude mm -hmm. and had a more traditional route to on demand and sure. home entertainment. Having an international Netflix release, what was that uh, experience like for a film? So Altitude, a company based in London, mm -hmm. was a was and still is a wonderful partner for Mary. They joined us at the beginning of our Ponok journey and uh, the founder of the, uh, of the company, a guy named Will Clark, has mm -hmm. really been um, very important to us. And I mentioned him, I, I want to throw out the name out there because Will's been an incredible supporter mm -hmm. of us. And the time was also a different time. And we still, it was, it sounds only like two or three years ago, but in the film distribution business, these last few, year, last few years have been a time of huge change, especially from now. So um, they supported us early on. We were delighted to work with them and they've done a great job with 
Mary, and I'm actually talking with them now about kind of the second release of Mary in a sense of what we do for the years ahead. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very cooperative, very positive. Modest Heroes was difficult because of the length of the film. Mm -hmm. It's 53 minutes and a, a few seconds, and um, it's not something that's easy to release. And I talked with Will, and I talked to other people, um, and we thought that this would be a great film to bring out um, directly to the consumer, mm -hmm. as much as I'd love everyone to see films on the you know, theatrical screens. So our U.S. distributor, G-Kids, actually North American distributor, G-Kids, they released the film in North America, theatrically, nationwide event for a few days, which is quite a big deal for a film like this. Um, released on home video and onto transactional video, things like um, iTunes, mm -hmm. um, Amazon, Amazon uh, not Prime, but Amazon Instant Video. Um, and then they are also looking at, at subscription video. But for the rest of the world, and out in Japan we have our own kind of situation, I really didn't know what to do. Uh, we were lost. And we talked to people, and there's been a few countries where we're showing the film in theaters for, again, kind of event screenings a few days, kind of things you organize. Mm -hmm. um, and also, we um, are, did a lot of film festivals as well. My colleague in the international team, she and I learned all about film festivals, which is new, and we put a lot of, we ended up with the film in about 25 film mm -hmm. festivals around the world, which is fun. Yeah. I aimed at all the continents and managed to get them all in the continents. <laughs> Thank you, Brazil. Um, <laughs> and then that left us in this moment of what do we do next? Mm -hmm. And I talked to a few platforms, but Netflix showed very keen interest right away. Insta almost instantly. Uh, it was an incredibly wonderful process. The people we met there, they apparently liked the film. Um, it was kind of a funny thing where I presented the film, uh, essentially a link to watch the film on a secure server, and the fellow who was going to watch it, um, I found out later, was expecting a baby at the time, so he was kind of busy. And when I called him up and I said, you know, we're about to show up in Annecy and show the film there, and there may be interest in the film, are you interested? And he said, let me call you tomorrow. So he probably watched that night, and the next day approached us with uh, an offer and a way to bring the film to Netflix, and within a week we had a deal. And a couple weeks later, my colleague and I went to the Netflix offices here in Tokyo, presented them materials, and it was smooth as silk. Mm. Um, learned a lot about presenting materials. It's a whole other business, but it was delightful, and they've been wonderful and cooperative and supportive. So I had yeah. nothing but great things to say about working with it's them. It's such a game changer for filmmakers as well, that the, the, the old um, process of going to film festivals, presenting to sales agents, and the sales agents presenting to mm -hmm. various territories and have to tick off all the territories individually. One by one. You now yeah. have that opportunity for all territories almost I, overnight. Yeah, I think it depends on the film. I mm. mean, the, bit, the problem for filmmakers, um, uh, that's us included, is we want the films to be shown on screens. Mm. Um, and I know the streaming platforms are trying to find ways to balance their interests of everywhere immediately now against slow, old-fashioned screens um, and finding that balance. And, and Netflix included, they're finding ways. Yeah. For this film, I think it was easier choice because we knew it was going to be hard to get this film into a cinema. It doesn't match the length of a film. Mm -hmm. you know, what price do you sell the tickets at? It's, it plus it's anthology, so it's three different films. So once people see it, they love it, and then they say, gee, I'm not sure how to do this and what to do with it. Um, but we're talking with a few distributors around the world to bring the films into theaters also on an educational basis. Mm -hmm. So I've written up some educational materials around the themes of the films. Right. So we could tie that into um, the screenings there. Mm. That's very interesting, yeah. And I suppose you can also, did you think about taking out in, and having individual shorts screenings in programs? That's how Canini and Canino turned up in the London Film Festival, for example. So I, I will answer your question. So yes, we thought about it. Yeah. Um, but they were designed to be a set. Mm -hmm. So for film festivals, they're quite interesting. They're very, there's a very diverse way of management at film festivals, I've learned. And so we were approached by 
um, London Film Festival to show Canini and Canino, and we said yes. Um, when the films are in competition in film festivals, they will always be separate because how you vote on mm. all three together. Um, our aim was for people to see the film and really see them as a set because, and hopefully your, your listeners will have a chance to watch it. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, it's on Netflix in the UK, so you can watch it there. And there is an English version and there is a Japanese version. Um, it does have a certain wholeness, we think, a unity to it. Maybe holistic is the word, it's kind of a funny word to apply here, but um, we wanted them to stay together. Mm -hmm. But we've shown the films individually for festivals. Mm -hmm. when, it was interesting when we talked with Netflix, this was a conversation of should they be available as almost like episodes, but they're not episodes. Mm -hmm. But then again, a show like Black Mirror, those don't tie into each other story-wise, but there is an arc yep. to the season, and we know everyone watched them all in a row anyway, like in you know, 24 hours. <laughs> so we decided not to distribute them separately. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad there is that unity because my favorite part, well, one of my favorite parts of the film are the in interstitial moments oh, where you the see the, the yeah. Ponoc uh, Skybound Film Festival. It's, uh, yeah, really it's a floating film festival. <laughs> yeah. 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 Trying to think who's there in the balloons. And <laughs> the three different colored films yeah. running it's absolutely through. Wonderful. Yeah, it's a beautiful piece <laughs> in itself. Yeah. It's obviously great that people are able to watch them as a set on Netflix, but going back to the start of the project, I'd be curious to ask what the creative genesis of the project was. What were you setting out to achieve in the first place with Modest Heroes? So it's hard for me to speak for Mr. Nishimura because he's a much deeper and broader thinker than I am. <laughs> but um, it, the project, a project like this has genesis in from several uh, starting points in a way. You've got the people who are going to make the film, you've got the studio's goals in making the films, and then of course you come the story. So it all comes back to Mr. Nishimura. It's his production. Um, originally there was the idea of life as a theme, which is a kind of a big and bold starting point. And then as the stories were developed, um, it was looking at... <laughs> Let me back up. So each director, as I understand it, as I've always heard from Mr. Nishimura, is that each director was given um, a technical challenge and a story challenge. Mm. So a technical challenge, for example, would be mm. in, I don't want to give it away if people haven't seen the film, so I'll try to be careful here, maybe weaving together different styles of film production. Mm. So you might use a certain type of drawing style or you may use a certain type of technology and how do you weave those together. Um, so one of the filmmakers was asked, I'm not going to say which, we'll keep it really vague. <laughs> one of the filmmakers was asked to weave together different types of things that we may have done before. Um, and then also to tell a story, for example, maybe without dialogue, mm. or to tell a story um, from a point of view that you usually don't see, kids helping their parents. It's not a common theme in films. Right. Uh, or tell a story that's essentially a documentary and might not be so interesting if it was acted out by people on a screen. How do you tell that in a dramatic way without being overdramatic? And also um, in a very positive, upbeat way using color and different design and different perspectives. Or how do you depict a person who has no visual appearance and express their emotions? And that's both technical and storytelling issues. So there was a lot of ways, of, there was a lot of philosophy of challenging directors who are really, really good at making films, mm. and almost to play to their weaknesses, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, and then you've got the problem of the length of the films. So they all average out to about 14, 15 minutes if you, on average. Um, and there's no time for a single moment that isn't precisely useful and needed. Not to say that that happens in bigger films, but in longer films there's kind of an emotional ups and downs naturally. You can't keep an audience on a high the whole time. You obviously can't keep it dull the whole time. But in a short film, every frame has to really signify something. And so that really calls for, that's like tight editing. It's like you can write a real long piece easily, but writing a short piece is super hard. Mm -hmm. It's similar to that. 
Um, so I think all those played into it. But in the end, the guiding force is the producer, Mr. Nishimura. And I think as they moved in this idea of life and depicting life, uh, we realized that we were depicting ordinary people, even if they're little crabs at a river, really just two boys, um, ordinary people doing what might be quite extraordinary things. And then we realized kind of we all do it all the time. Mm -hmm. And that came around very much in coming up with the title in English as well, as you know. So um, I hope that answers your question. That answers it perfectly. Yeah. And actually, it feeds into what is one of the overarching concerns of the podcast. Of course, I don't know how much it's the same over here, but in the UK and the US, we're very much a director-focused culture. The, the, it's a Martin Scorsese film mm. or a Hayao Miyazaki film. But mm -hmm. as we've looked into the backstories of these films over the years, the producer's incredibly important for finding the project, marshalling the project, directing the geniuses, uh, the animation geniuses, through the project. And it's so fascinating to hear the Nishimura-san you know, set those boundaries, mm -hmm. set those challenges, and mm -hmm. saw the film I, I think that I think the key is in the titles. So mm. the producer produces the film, yeah. and then hires a director. Now, of course, a well-known director or a director of means uh, or reputation can lead, <laughs> and they will find a producer, and then it becomes a different relationship. But for the most part, producers produce a film, and they hire a director, and they hire an art director, and they hire a sound person, and they produce that film. And that's become mm. really apparent to me, both working with. Mr. Nishimura, but also in producing the English versions. I remember the first time I was in Los Angeles working on From Up on Poppy Hill, and I was really new at this whole thing, and I was kind of had no idea what I was doing. I was relying on other people to know. And I turned to someone who had done this for a while, and I said, what's my title? I kind of wanted to know if I'd be in the credits, <laughs> to be honest. And he looked at me, surprised, says, well, you're the producer. Ooh. I said, well, what do you mean by that? It sounded like, it sounded wrong to me. He says, well, you, it was your idea to do it, in a sense, from their point of view. Mm -hmm. You found the money, you hired the people, you're the one everyone hates during the production and thanks afterwards. I was like, okay, that makes sense. And it turned out over time that that was my job. How much I get involved in different tasks may vary. I've been told that most times producers don't show up for the English language versions of their films, mm -hmm. which would surprise me, but I was taking on that extra role of kind of also the protector of the story. Um, we are a producer-founded studio, a yep. producer-created studio. Not, it's not to say our directors don't have a very strong voice in creating their films. I mean, it's a definitely a collaboration, but it is... Yoshiaki Nishimura Studio. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, to, to be to be clear there, whereas Ghibli was co-founded by two directors and had a very strong produ producer there. Well, as it was well. founded by two directors. Mm -hmm. Then later, a couple films in, they brought in a producer, someone they've been working with. Who, mm. became who is, who is the, one of the secret heroes of our podcast, Toshio Suzuki? Oh yeah, yeah. love the man. Every episode, and his calligraphy as well. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. But then Ponok, though, is Nishimura's shingle. It is. Speak. It is, and and. I think he gets a little bit uncomfortable when I say so, but I really admire him. I mean, he, he didn't have to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, leaving Ponok, there probably, excuse me, leaving Ghibli, there were probably a lot of different things he could have done. Mm -hmm. um, but he foolishly listened to what I said in, at a, an event we were together in LA, and I said, you should create a studio. Um, and he did. I, you know, it takes a lot of courage, yeah. and it's hard work. And to continue that gushing, to think of the handful of films that he's worked on today, they have yeah. been some the best animation produced internationally in the last 10 years, I, 15 I years. would not disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, actually, I, just after mentioning calligraphy there, this is a very niche question, but I occasionally write about typography and design. And uh, I loved the Studio Ponoc logo that came up at the start of Mary. And then uh, there was a little treat during Modest Heroes to see the slightly adjusted Ponoc logo before each film with a little bit of iconography mm. from each of them mm. picked out and 
I don't know where that came from. That comes from Mr. Nishimoto. Yeah. Him. yeah. And uh, well, I hope to see a changing logo each time for every future I'll let him film. Know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a tricky thing, logos, because you want to identify, you want to create something that people will identify with and recognize. And the dream is for people to want to see the next film from Studio Ponok, and there aren't many studios that have that ability. You know, people, everyone wants to see the next film from Ardman, for example. Mm. You talk about Ardman and what film they're making, so brand. Awareness and growing brand affection is a very important thing. So how much you play with that logo is a really kind of almost a dangerous task. I think it's beautiful in Modest Heroes because the logo is still very clear and very crisp and presented in a way that makes it more memorable. Mm -hmm. And I suppose you do mention looking forward to the next film from Ponok. Yes. What can you tell us about this Olympic film? Uh, I can't tell you much. It's <laughs> early days. So we are in the earliest steps of um, working on a feature film. Mm -hmm. I guess the next one from Ponov to be accurate is a film we're creating for the International Olympic Committee. It's going to be a short film that the International Olympic Committee commissioned to promote, it's kind of the wrong word, but kind of educate mm -hmm. and bring the Olympic values of excellence, respect, and friendship out to audiences in a way, into the world in a way that isn't directly related to watching amazing athletes. Because you obviously can see that in the Olympics beautifully. So we are creating a short film in, the, in our signature style that the Olympic Committee, International Olympic Committee, will use in the years ahead to promote those values, and right. it will be available starting next summer. And that will be, we'll be able to see that internationally? Every, if, if I get, do my job right, it'll be <laughs> everywhere, it'll be absolutely <laughs> everywhere. Um, obviously, it's, it's, it'll be owned by the Olympic Committee, which mm -hmm. is a departure for us, because of course we own our films, but this is a special case, mm -hmm. because it is the Olympics, and they're pretty special. Um, and of course, the Olympics are in Tokyo next year, so it is coinciding with that, although this will live on past the Tokyo Olympics, um, and they'll release it, but we're also working closely with them to bring it to other platforms. Um, you know, the side story, I was in China a few weeks ago, and I realized that a lot of Chinese viewers wouldn't be able to see the film on the platforms that it'll be released mm -hmm. on in, by the IOC, for example. So now we're talking with Chinese platforms to bring it there as well. There's the right. Beijing Winter Olympics mm -hmm. in 2022. Um, so we're hoping that it'll be everywhere. Hopefully you'll see it so often, <laughs> you may even turn the channel on. <laughs> Don't advise it. Right. It, should be, it should be very, very accessible. Mm -hmm. Oh, looking forward very much to seeing Me it. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's oh, really my really pleasure. Good. Thank you very thank much. You. Thanks for your support. <laughs> So Michael, we've now taken a few steps away from Studio Pollock. We've headed to Marugami Sema, a noodle restaurant, on Jeff's very recommendation. And that has been a fantastic lunch, hasn't it? Yeah. Oh, a beautiful lunch. And a good pause to just take in everything we saw and spoke about at Pollock. Mm. And we were just bowled over by the hospitality, the welcome we had from Jeff, from Hisai, his colleague on the International Division, and Yoshiaki Nishimura, very much the a sort of silent presence there. But in also the a surprise guest as yeah. well. Um, what an amazing thing to turn up and have him there in the room with us. Just with us chatting about dubs, yeah. he's happy to just sit there and take it all in. Yeah. It was amazing after that chat to be taken around the studio mm. by Jeff and his side. Yeah, it's, it's a quite an unassuming place studio Ponock's office. It's relatively near a train track in, out in the suburbs. Um, but Jeff told us that up and down this route is animation studios. 
and they will dip in and out of each other's office. And well, the next stop along on the train is where the Studio Ghibli corporate office is. We do have some pictures of that, I'm sure it's already been all over Twitter. But in between here and there, many studios apparently. So Jeff was saying that when they're in super active production, there'd be hundreds of envelopes of thousands of animation cells coming in and out the door. Yeah, and this is the thing, it was so physical, the production. Like, it really is just sheets and sheets and sheets of paper. We were lucky enough to actually go to the animation stations where the artists were crafting the film. We uh, weren't lucky enough to see what they might be working on, but to see just those sheets of paper, the brushes, and what a wonderful thing to turn a corner and just see a hand-painted character design from Modest Heroes just hanging up on someone's desk. You turn around, there's and my neighbour's the Yamada's calendar. Yeah. And then we saw that animators, there are two different sorts of desks and stations they can have. There's the old school type that Jeff says many of those desks came from Ghibli, that they took with them. And then there's a whole new type of desk for the cutting edge animators that Yoshiaki Nishimura apparently had a hand in at least devising and developing. It was really interesting, and just seeing how different animators used their stations. We turned a corner and saw that two, two animators were using the hot lamps from their desk to grow tomatoes in the office. Yeah, it's given me some inspiration for our office, but I don't know if we'll get away with it. It's a good way of, you know, you may not have, you know, we don't have much exterior light coming into our office, bringing the exterior flora and fauna into the office. And, I mean, what a wonderful combination of actually hearing from Jeff about the end product, how it gets delivered out into the world across international borders and languages, and also seeing everything right down to the individual hand-painted animation that starts that whole journey as well. But then all the way through to the merchandise. Jeff said they've not really gone too far into merchandising just yet, waiting until they have more films. But even for Mary, they had little finger toys for all the characters. And because, of course, this is Yoshiaki Nishimura's studio, toys and merch and memories from the previous films he worked on, like when Marnie was there and Princess Kaguya. I mean, I wasn't expecting there to be any Kaguya merch of all the films that we've spoken about for a film that is so melancholic. But it does have wonderful figures, wonderful characters in it. And I swoon when we saw a little bamboo cutter on the shelf. I was swooning at the, a little keyring Marnie charm they had. I also loved how Jeff said that this was his doing. So many people ask him what Ponok means. He had this dictionary, I think it was a Croatian to English dictionary, where he'd cut out a little window in some tracing paper to highlight the, the translation definition of the word Ponok. We'll have a picture of that, I'm sure, on Twitter. But it was just such a wonderful visit, and they were so generous, not just with their time, not just with their insight, but on the way out we were handed this little gift. Yeah. Should we unwrap on Mike? Well, I think we've never quite done an unboxing video. Maybe, maybe this is our equivalent, the unboxing audio, the unboxing podcast. So let's say what we're looking at. I'd say that's more of a maroon off-red. Oh, with soft lines. Wrapping paper very nicely wrapped. Perfectly Three strips tape. of tape. This person has wrapped something before. Should I dig in? Absolutely, tear away. Ooh, it's a box in a box. It's a box in a box. Ooh, it's taped again. 
This is so. actually really sweet. It's taped with another layer of wrapping, which has a really lovely illustrated bow on top of it. I know, but I don't really want to rip this, but I'm going to have to. And around it goes to reveal the, the, the wheel keeps open. turning. And the box opens. <gasps> and inside the box, we have two towels. Yeah, so they're on a... It's got a lovely dual colour pink coral background and on top of it we've got Tib the cat from Mary and the Witch's Flower looking wonderfully frustrated at us for <laughs> unboxing him. Yes, um, and, and it's got a reversible design as well on the back, almost showing the sort of the light and shadow motif <laughs> of Mary and the Witch's Flower. And I, I think this is a Tenugui. Right, a, a sort of very nicely designed very high quality gift towel. Yeah. And we also have one here which is uh, sort of light and darker blue polka dot style with the Studio Ponoc logo on. Again, reversible. Absolutely beautiful. And what a wonderful, wonderful gift. And so we, now we've unwrapped this wonderful gift from Jeff, we should wrap up. Yeah, and um, say thank you once more to Hisai, to Jeff, and to Yoshiaki Nishimura, the CEO and producer of Studio Ponok, for welcoming us into their office today. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. One final very special thank you from the Ghibliotech team to everyone at Studio Ponok, to Jeff, to Hisai, to Yoshiaki Nishimura, the founder as well. Such a warm welcome and such great insight into how these films are released. Yeah. And also shout out to Maragami Saiman, looking back at my food list that I was keeping throughout our time in Tokyo. That actually came in fourth out of a list that extended across every meal that we ate across the whole time. So well done to them. I think you should write up this list and put it on ghibliotech.tumblr.com, which is where we're putting up photos, videos and other treats from our time in Japan. We have one more conversation left with Paul Williams, an animator from the UK that's based out there in Japan now. But that'll be in the next episode. But until then, you can follow us at Ghibliotech on Twitter or Jake at Jake H. Cunningham. And you can follow Michael at Michael J. Leader. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Moe, and Jamie Maisner is our audio wizard. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Steph Watts, and Harold McShiel. Thanks to John Harris, Evan Marr, Annie Hughes, Dan Jones, and Karis Gaskin for their help putting the trip together, and to everyone who sent in their Tokyo recommendations. Can you remember what was number one? Yakitori was number one, Himawari Sushi was number two. Yeah. And Hijiri Ramen and Gyoza was number three. The one where we saw like little spiders on the table. Yeah, but that doesn't matter. That ramen was incredible. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 